The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading is from John 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, then your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one who works in secret, for no one works in secret if he sees to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. 
Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning, everybody. I extend, along with Pastor Bob, a warm welcome to anybody who's newer here to Coram Deo. Grateful to have you with us. If you were here with us last week, how great was it to have Pastor Doug Logan here? What a rich time. Because Nebraska had a bye week this week, I was able to go back and watch some of the film of him preaching last week and take, a few, take away a few keys. Got my sweat towel and my water bottle in case this turns into a workout. And uh, additionally, I, I learned that if you guys start to kind of get lulled to sleep, all I have to do is play hard to get, come back here, and then turn and come forward with authority. And then I know I got your back, all right? So if I do that, that might be me judging you for not paying attention. Okay, so we have a, uh, Joy, thanks for reading a long passage. We have a whole chapter to cover. I wanna go ahead and get started. Here's my outline. Uh, we're gonna talk about the context of this chapter. We're gonna talk about three questions that surface in this chapter, and then we're gonna look at a particular invitation that comes from the Lord Jesus. Context, three questions, and an invitation. So let's start with context. Uh, I wanna ask you, when's the last time that you entered a room and immediately felt kind of the rush of anxiety and stress and tension of that room come over you, right, like a wave off the ocean. 
right? When's the, when's the last time you've entered into a relational space where as soon as you enter into it, you just know there's anxiety here, okay? We've, we've all been in those spaces before, whether it's uh, a combative college university classroom that's got kind of a domineering professor, perhaps it's a dysfunctional uh, family holiday gathering, could be a poorly led business meeting that's in a difficult season, could be a school board meeting during the pandemic, could be Twitter, right? There's just these spaces that when you find yourself in them, it's easy to feel disoriented, a little unnerved, and overwhelmed. And every one of us has at one point or another felt this space, and if we're honest with one another, uh, many of us have been actually agents to create that space. I know for myself, at least at the Curtis home, um, Saturdays, like many of your Saturdays, are full of activity and fun and energy and play. Uh, but when it comes to be about five, six o'clock in the evening, and I start kind of sensing that Sunday's coming, and I start to feel a lot of anxiety, my wife has grown to kind of tell me, hey, the the, the, the anxiety thermostat's starting to warm up in the house right now, okay? Things are getting a little, little punchy, little tense, right? Um, and that happens. That might be different than, that might be what you experience on Sundays, right? On Sunday nights preparing for the work week. But that's what I feel, feel on Saturday nights. Um, and this is a basic human experience. It's a basic human reality. Over the last few decades, sociologists have been researching these relational dynamics and have begun putting words uh, to what they would call anxious relational systems. Anxious relational systems. And as Jesus returns back to Jerusalem in chapter 7, uh, that's exactly what he's walking into. Okay, It has been uh, a while, chapter 5, was when Jesus was last in Jerusalem. And when he was there, uh, he had healed a man on the Sabbath, a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. He healed him. And additionally, he was referencing his relationship with the God of the universe as being his father. And, and what you see, if you actually just flip back from John 7 to John 5, verse 18, it says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So what we're going to see in chapter 7 and what we're going to continue to see as the gospel of John continues is that the city, the town of Jerusalem is filled with anxiety. It is filled with tension as Jesus enter in, enters in to fulfill his God-given ministry. And we see that uh, the context is set up in the first 10 verses or so of, of chapter 7. We see that Jesus had been remaining in Galilee, okay? From where chapter 6 turns into chapter 7, there's been about six months that have taken place. And it says in verse 1, he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And now the Feast of the Booths was at hand. So the Feast of the Booths, we'll talk about in a moment, but was a, it was a time when the Jewish people would go to Jerusalem. And his brothers are basically inviting him, saying, hey, if we're going to go, let's go do a triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and let's put on display some of your miracles so that everybody can see them, right? And Jesus says, no, my time has not yet come. 
right? Jesus is not overwhelmed by peer pressure. He's not overwhelmed by family pressure to do something that he wouldn't want to do or that the Father has not called him to do. So he says, no, not yet. Uh, And then uh, he stays back. His brothers go. And then in verse 10, it says, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. And the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So you can already sense kind of the anxious relational system at play here in this text. Edwin Friedman, uh, who was an ordained Jewish rabbi and practicing family therapist, in his book, Failure of Nerve, identified five characteristics of a chronically anxious system. And we can see each of them playing out here in chapter 7. The first characteristic that he identified was a heightened level of reactivity. That is, rather than a spirit of joyfulness and playfulness and humor and spontaneity, everything feels dire and serious and threatening. So keep in mind, Jesus is returning back to Jerusalem during uh, this Feast of the Booths, or in other translations, it says the Feast of the Tabernacles, which was a time uh, that happened during the months of October, November-ish, about this season. And, And in the current moment, they were celebrating kind of the end of the harvest, but they were also looking back Uh, to their history as God's people and the ways that God provided for them after the Exodus, after they went through the Red Sea in Exodus chapter uh, 14 and 15, God provided shelter for them. He provided housing for them. They had tents. So during this Feast of the Booths, this week-long feast, they would set up structures, tents, booths on the roofs of their house and live in those for a week to remind themselves of of what they did in the wilderness, right? And they celebrated God's provision of of bread that we saw in Exodus 16. And they celebrated the provision of, of water when they were a thirsty people in Exodus 17, And they were looking for something to drink, and God took a rock, Moses struck that rock, and out of it flowed, right, a river of living water to nourish them. So this was the context of the environment that they were celebrating in, and they were even looking ahead into the future of a time when God would provide an ultimate feast for his people, where the harvest would be done and they would be celebrating. So to give us a contextual, um, something that you might resonate with, right, this is Thanksgiving on steroids, which sounds great, doesn't it? Like Thanksgiving on steroids. Uh, And yet, as you're reading the text, it doesn't seem like they're celebrating that much. It doesn't seem like they're having a lot of fun, okay? Rather, the environment feels um, heavy. It feels weighty. There's a heightened level of reactivity. The second characteristic uh, that's mentioned is that in these systems, there's a herding instinct. In relationally anxious systems, Because people are anxious, they band together for self-protection to resist change. So there's a a polarizing hurting that we see here in chapter 7 as people are responding to who Jesus is. Some think he is a good man. Others think that he's leading them astray. Some are marveling at what he is doing, while others... um, uh, just can't, they're just questioning him. Like they're just, they just don't quite understand what's happening. Some are coming to faith. They're acknowledging Jesus as the Christ, while others are wanting to arrest him and to see him put to death. Okay. The third 
characteristic is blame displacement. This is rather than taking responsibility for themselves and looking internally, people are quick to look outward and assign blame. Verse 19, Jesus is questioning the crowd and saying, Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? So he's pressing them in. He's inviting them to do some introspective work. And their response is, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you, right? Blame displacement. Focus off me. Focus on to you. And to capture some of the insanity of the moment, in verse 19 and 20, it says, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Only five verses later, you see some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is this not the man whom they seek to kill? The environment's a little insane, right? It's full of anxiety. It's full of stress. The fourth characteristic that Friedman mentions is a quick fix mentality. This is where anxious people want someone else to solve their problems and to do it now. This is the chief priests and this is the rulers and the Pharisees sending out the officers to arrest Jesus right away and bring him in. The fifth characteristic that um, Edwin Friedman notes is poor leadership. Chronically anxious systems have poor leadership. And here in chapter 7, we see rather than being a people of grace and peace and truth, the religious leaders of this day are using their power and their platform to seek, to kill, and to destroy the Son of God and the movement that's building up behind him. So this is Jerusalem, okay? This is an anxious relational system that Jesus finds himself in. And what Jesus is going to show us, you and me together in this chapter, is how we can enter and engage anxious relational systems with a life-giving presence. How we can engage these systems that are full of tension and anxiety with a life-giving, peace-emanating presence. Not the type of presence that tends to run over people as a way of squashing the anxiety, and not the type of presence that just wants to pull away and withdraw to avoid it, but rather the type of presence that is life-giving and spirit-filled. Okay? Now, as we move in that direction, let's consider three questions together. Uh, threaded throughout this chapter are three questions posed to Jesus by the crowd, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly. And this crowd is trying to make sense of his teaching. So we see the first question kind of in verse 14, verse 15, where in verse 14 it says, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Okay, so the example here, right, to put this into our own context would be, let's say you're at work and there's a new hire coming in or you're in the neighborhood and somebody moves in down the block and you see this person and they're like really well put together. They're articulate. They, they seem to kind of have a, a degree of charisma, maybe even a little bit of integrity in them. And you think to yourself, man, this person seems like they would have gone to a real prestigious, maybe high school out west, maybe Millard South High School, right? <laughs> But when I go through the alumni records, I don't see that they were ever there, okay? That's what they're asking of Jesus. Who, whose teaching was he under? Who taught this man who speaks with such authority? Jesus answers the question in verse 16. 
So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So if the question is, where did Jesus go to school? Where did Jesus get his training? The answer is, Jesus' authority is from God the Father. God has taught and commissioned Jesus. God has given him the things that he teaches. And if the crowd had been walking in right relationship with God, they would have recognized his teaching because his teaching is trying to give glory to the Father. But instead, they keep missing the point. Exhibit A, verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a, a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Here's what Jesus is saying. We're talking about the Sabbath. If you're religious leaders, if you're Pharisees, as a way of obeying the law of Moses, are willing to do circumcisions eight days after kids have been born, and they're willing to do those circumcisions on Sundays, and that's permissible to your law. Yet I healed a man who was paralyzed for 38 years, restored his whole body, making him well, and I'm being condemned by you. Shall it be that we not judge by appearances, but begin judging with right judgment? They're unable to see his teaching. They're unable to perceive because they're not, they're not walking in right relationship with the Father. They're not seeing that the Father is communicating to them through Jesus, and they're disoriented. So the first question, where did Jesus go to school? Jesus' authority is from God the Father. Question two, where is Jesus from? We see this question surface in verse 25. It says, some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So again, there's a little bit of a contradiction in their thinking and what they've heard from the prophets. Down to verse 40, it says, When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. And others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So obviously here, there's some confusion about where, where Jesus is from, where Jesus was born, okay? 
They don't have the luxury that we have of many years of perhaps coming to church on Christmas and knowing that Jesus was a baby born in Bethlehem, right? We have that almost in our subconscious. We know that to be true. But to them, Jesus was Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was Jesus of a small town in Galilee somewhere. Yet they had heard from the prophets uh, that the, the Christ, the Messiah, was to come from the line of David and to come out of Bethlehem, right? So, hey, Simple solution, not going to stir too much up. Jesus just needs to show up, pull out his birth certificate, place of birth, Bethlehem, and let's move on, right? But he doesn't do that. He actually takes the stakes even a little bit higher. Verse 28, so Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his, his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Question number two, where is Jesus from? The answer, Jesus has come from God the Father. Jesus has come from God the Father. Which means what we see in this text is that if Jesus was sent from the Father, his presence has purpose. His presence has purpose. Same is true today. Jesus' presence still has purpose. We know this to be true as we've been looking at the, the Gospel of John. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. That God gave his own Son, sent his own Son into the world, not to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus has a divine purpose. He has a kingdom-minded agenda to him. And the way that John writes, it's really interesting. He writes almost cyclical where the things that he brings up are going to continue to come back. You see that in the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. It's different than some of the other ways that letters in the, the New Testament are written, but he's going to come back to this theme over and over again. John 10, 10, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Over and over again, you see that Jesus came with a purpose to give life to his people. And what that means is that Jesus present in your life today has a divinely appointed purpose in it. Jesus has come to set you free from sin. Jesus has come to take the idols that you give yourself to and topple them over. Jesus has come to bring healing to areas of brokenness and suffering in your life. Jesus has come to give you a divinely appointed purpose. Like if you think about the fact that if you are in Christ, if you are united with Jesus, you too have purpose. Your presence in spaces has purpose. John 20, verse 21 and 22. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Whatever anxious relational system you may be moving to and moving into in the next week, in the next month, here, your presence has purpose. You have been sent by Jesus with his spirit into this mad, broken, 
hurting, anxious world to give life. Your presence has purpose. So question two, where is Jesus from? And the answer, Jesus has come from God the Father. Question number three, verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. Will you, seek, you will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go? that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Here's the question that's being asked. Where is Jesus going? The answer, Jesus is going to God the Father. Again, in verse 33, it says, I will be with you a little longer than I'm going to him who sent me. And for the Christian brother, sister in the room this morning, perhaps the one who who fears the idea of death, who is anxious about what feels like the unknown, this truth that Jesus is going to God the Father should give you hope. Why? John 14, verses 1 through 3, listen to these words. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would, have, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. The fact that Jesus is going to the Father to prepare a place for us only to return and to bring us back to him, is the hope that pulls us forward by faith. It's the hope for those who feel anxious about the impending reality that this life, this body comes to an end. It's the hope that gives us courage and confidence to face death with confidence. It's the hope that pulls us forward by faith. It's likely that Jesus taught on a lot of different topics during this week in Jerusalem. And yet John, the author of this gospel, recorded this. These three questions that kind of surface, some directly, some indirectly, and the answers. Why? Well, we can't get into his head, but we can assume perhaps that... um, Well, let me just say this. The reason why they were out to kill Jesus was that Jesus had basically considered himself equal with God. And then he shows up here this week, this Feast of the Booths, has a lot of things that he probably could talk about. What John continues to draw our attention to is that Jesus continues to beat that drum. The Father and I are one. The Father and I are equal. Where do I get my authority? From God my Father. Where am I from? God my Father sent me. Where am I going? To be with God my Father. So he's he's entering into this space with 
boldness and with strength and with truth. And in some ways, it's as though he's drawing a line in the dirt and saying, hey, if you're out there listening, you have to at some point respond to who it is that I am and orient your life around that. So, I love how this community gives one another space and time to work out the questions that we have, the doubts that we have, that this has become a safe place for the skeptic, for the de-churched to come and to process um, in a way that's not hurried, in a way that's not bullied, in a way that's not manipulated, that this is a place for, for you to feel welcome here. But, but there's a danger that we have to be aware of. When you give space and time, and that's left unchecked, because eventually what it can lead to doesn't always, but what it can lead to is apathy and indifference. Here's what I mean. You come with questions. You want questions answered about who Jesus is, and, and you kind of you, you hear some things, but you don't quite respond to it. And you don't quite uh, decide, where am I going to land on this? And, and, and then you come back again, and you hear some more, and you come back again, and you hear some more, and you keep immersing yourself here. But man, at, at, a, at a point, you become almost inoculated. You become indifferent to the things that are coming, and you just kind of find yourself stale and not responsive, and yet continuing to listen. And I think what this text is trying to show us, or at least trying to remind us of, is we have to respond to who Jesus is. We have to make a decision to who Jesus is. C.S. Lewis was quoted as saying, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. The only thing it can't be is moderately important. The only place you can stand with Jesus over time that doesn't work is an area of indifference. Because if you're indifferent to the things of Jesus, you're rejecting Jesus. So Jesus is driving home his union with the Father pretty clearly in this chapter, causing the crowd to make a decision. Are we believing in who Jesus is? Are we rejecting who Jesus is? Are we submitting to Jesus as Lord? Do we want to have him arrested? Where are we landing? And I think the question that we have to ask is, what about you? What are you going to do to who Jesus has revealed himself to be? C.S. Lewis also popularized the argument that you can identify Jesus as a liar, as a lunatic, as a legend, or as Lord. You're hearing him talk. You put him in the category of liar, putting him in the category of lunatic, a made-up legend. That doesn't make sense. Read the book of Acts. It doesn't make sense that he'd be a legend. People wouldn't give their life for a legend. Is he Lord? So the crowd is questioning Jesus. Accusations are being made. A storm is brewing in Jerusalem. You can feel it. Words of condemnation are heard. Some want to arrest Jesus. Others want him killed. And yet in the middle of the insanity, Jesus is both strong and kind. And he extends an invitation, a life-giving one at that. So let's take a look at the invitation. I'm not sure if you've picked up on it yet, but Jesus really seems to be a good Bible guy. Uh, like he has this uncanny way of looking at the circumstances that are going on around him, looking at the celebrations that are going on around him and aligning his teaching with that thing. So like there's an automatic illustration right here that you can draw from. The same is true here. 
If we take one step back again into the context for a moment, I want you to listen to how the late British theologian and missionary Leslie Newbegin describes the Feast of Booths in his commentary on the Gospel of John. He says this, This was the most popular of the annual festivals and drew vast crowds to Jerusalem. It was originally the celebration of the completion of the harvest, but it had become filled with a strong element of eschatological expectations, which means it was a foretaste of the age to come, the final harvest. Its central ceremonies made use of the symbolism of water and light. Each day, water was drawn from the pool of Siloam and carried up to the temple in procession. While the words of Isaiah 12, 3 were sung, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. The prophecy of Zechariah 14, 8, that on that day, living waters would flow out of Jerusalem was recalled. And at night in the temple, courts were brilliantly lit up, recalling the preceding verse in Zechariah 14, 7 with its promise of unending daylight. The form of Jesus' teaching on this occasion is clearly governed by these festival themes of living water and light. Historians and biblical scholars have noted that on the final day of the festival, the seventh day of this Feast of Booths, the procession of water from the pool of Siloam to the temple took place seven times. Not just once, seven times. Verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Sound familiar? We heard that before. If your longings and desires can't be satisfied, if you thirst, if you find yourself longing for something that this world cannot provide, Jesus stands now, even today, and says, come to me and drink. But then his invitation gets even better. Verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Huh. And then John helps interpret. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay, let's go back all the way to the beginning. How can you have a life-giving presence in a world filled with anxious relational systems? How can you become the type of person who can face the insanity of an anxious world with joy, with love, with peace? How can you become the type of person who can face suffering and sadness with patience and kindness and goodness? How can you become the type of person who can model for others faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? How can you become this type of life-giving person? Jesus says, not by performing and achieving, but by believing and receiving. Not by performing 
and achieving, but by believing and receiving. By believing him, believing the gospel of Jesus Christ and receiving the Holy Spirit, right? That's how you have a life-giving presence. That's how out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. A rich gospel culture of the kingdom of God, a life-giving gospel-infused culture will happen when we believe the gospel and we receive the Holy Spirit. This starts with your own heart. Like for me on Saturday nights, you know what needs to happen for me to bring about a life-giving presence, right? A non-anxious presence in my home. The spirit of comfort's got to actually take root in my own heart. I've got to feel a sense of peace. I've got to feel a sense of gentleness. And then once I've experienced that and once I've felt that from the Holy Spirit, flowing out from me is the Spirit moving to others. And the same is true for you. If you want to be a life-giving presence for others that starts by believing the gospel and receiving the Holy Spirit in your own heart, being comforted by the Holy Spirit in your own heart, and then allowing to flow from your heart rivers of living water. And do you see, for those of you who strive to have a life-giving presence, how countercultural this is? Like you're going to walk out into a world that tomorrow morning when you wake up, if you go into wherever you're going and say, hey, I want to have a, I want to make a difference. I want to make a difference in the world. I want my life to mean something in the world. You know what the questions that are going to come to you are? Hey, where are you from? What side of the tracks did you grow up on? Where have you been trained? Do you have the education for it? What are you going to be doing with your life? How are you going to make it there? Where are you going? Right, the world is going to want you to develop a resume, right? Which, hey, for a church that's kind of filled with some performers and achievers, sounds good. Now, don't get me wrong. Go perform. Go achieve to the glory of God. But hey, what the world needs to undo some of the anxiety that is just building up in this system is not you going in with some sort of strategy and plan of how I'm going to make a difference. Where that actually needs to start is by you believing the gospel, by you receiving the Holy Spirit, and then allowing the Holy Spirit of God to flow from your heart as rivers of living water to others. I was thinking about it this this morning as we were singing, like... Just the irony of a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about Jesus being the bread of life, we had bread. Um, This morning, as we're talking about rivers of living water, we just got got a monsoon coming down on us, right? It's like God's wanting to drive home this point, right? The Holy Spirit wants to fall. So if you want to have a life-giving presence that cultivates gospel culture in your college classroom, at family Thanksgiving coming up, that you know when I step into that place, that's going to be a little dicey, right? Maybe in your gospel community, Maybe at a a board meeting, hey, the invitation that Jesus gives is to believe and to receive. To believe the gospel and to receive the Holy Spirit. For whoever believes in Jesus, out of his or her heart will flow his spirit like rivers of living water. And not a bucket that ultimately is going to run out. A river that constantly is flowing. Let me close by bringing our attention back to the text and to our old friend Nicodemus. If you're naturally skeptical, intrigued by Jesus, this is your guy. 
Uh, we saw him first back in, in, in John chapter 3. He reappears here in chapter 7. He will return again before the end of the book. Uh, and if you remember, Nicodemus was a man of the Pharisees. He was a ruler of the Jews. If anyone in this text so far would be a classic performer and achiever, it's this guy. Verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him, being Jesus? The officers, verse 46, answered, no one ever spoke like this man. Verse 47, the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Do you hear what he's saying? Right? You went out there and you were tricked by all those guys. The crowd's, the crowd's fools. Look at the leaders, right? They haven't been deceived. And then in this moment, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Verse 52, and they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Did you see it? The skeptic, Nicodemus, this man who was well acquainted with performing and achieving in this moment when there's a line drawn in the sand and how are people going to respond, he takes a giant step forward towards believing and receiving. Would that be true of us this morning? Let's pray. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, we worship you this morning in the fullness of your triune nature. God the Father, we praise you for giving all authority to Jesus, for sending Jesus, and for receiving the Lord Jesus back to your right hand. God the Son, Lord Jesus, we praise you for living out your divinely appointed purpose. You entered into some of the most difficult, some of the most painful, some of the most exhausting circumstances with endless grace and truth. God the Spirit, even as the rain falls now, we praise you for being one who softens our hearts of stone and fills us with rivers of living water, giving us the capacity to have a life-giving presence. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for freeing us from the never-ending treadmill of performing and achieving. For those now in the room who have never bowed the knee to King Jesus, would you extend your hand of grace and give them faith now to believe in Jesus and to receive the Holy Spirit. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.